0: Hello, hello. So, my sister called me the other day, and I miss her. I miss her a lot, actually. She's super busy. She's working full-time. And the first thing out of her mouth was, I know I don't have the right to call and make any Kristen withdrawals because I just haven't had the time to make enough deposits. But I'm having a really bad day. (laughs) So, That comment got me to thinking about the deposits we make in so many areas of our lives. And I hope today's episode is very thought-provoking because it certainly was for me. And I have lots of people to thank for the gentle nudge in this direction today. Lana and Fred, Heidi of course, Spencer, and several posts from my friends that confirmed my belief that when you get the same message repeatedly from different sources, someone's trying to tell you something. Well, that is exactly how I feel about the content for this episode today, so let's dive in. Do you remember the very first bank account you got as a kid? That experience dates way back for me. As a 10-year-old girl, my bank account was represented by a blue bank savings passport. My mom took me in with an envelope stuffed with $100 worth of crumpled up bills. It was the money I was going to use to buy Rusty, the Shetland pony owned by our neighbors across the street. Oh my gosh, I wanted that pony. <laughs> They started staking him out next to our small country road to eat the wild grass that was out there, and so I asked if I could buy him. Okay, my friends, beware. This is a true story, (laughs) and you may want to have a Kleenex or two handy, because i fell in love with this little pony, this fatter than fat little guy whose hooves were turned up. He was a little chestnut gelding and he tugged at my heartstrings every single time I went out to pet him and he would neigh the second he saw me. He would pull at my heartstrings every time it rained as well. I used to take the slip and slide in front of our yard and I would go pull it over the both of us and snuggle his big thick neck keeping him dry until the storm passed. I would sneak all my mom's carrots from the garden that summer and walk across the street and take them to Rusty. When I was almost 11, I got a thrifty nickel weekend paper route that I did on my bike, and I saved every single penny. When I finally had a $100 to buy him, I marched across the street so proud with my wadded bills in a big envelope, envisioning taking this sweet pony home to my backyard only to find that they had sold him, earlier that day, to the glue factory. Yes, it's true, and yes, that still hurts. Oh, life goes on, and instead of the fatter-than-fat pony that for all intents and purposes really couldn't have been kept in my backyard, I got to open a bank account instead. Before all things digital, we used to actually have to take the cash into the bank, the actual building. I wonder how many young people have even ever been in the building itself now that you can do everything online. Anyway, back in the day, you would turn over all your cold, hard cash, and they would write in your bank book ledger with a black pen the exact dollar amount you were depositing. Every time I had more money that I wanted to deposit, I had to have my parents drive me to Valley Bank in Idaho Falls so that I could hand over this hard-earned cash for the satisfaction of seeing them write down one more contribution and watch that balance grow. All of my efforts and hard work padded that little account so that when I wanted to make a withdrawal and buy something, like another briar horse statue, (laughs) or to renew my subscription to the Western Horseman magazine – yes, it's true, I was such a wannabe – then I would have ample funds to pay for it. It was a balancing act. If I was careful and conscientious with my money, I'd still have extra in my account for a rainy day or another belt buckle, (laughs) but if I tried to withdraw more than the balanced amount, they wouldn't let me. I simply would be in the hole, so instead I learned to go without until I could make the deposits necessary to withdraw the amount I wanted. That's how accounts work, right? We make enough deposits that the account always has ample funds to support us and meet our needs. There are a lot of different kinds of bank accounts, aren't there? Including checking, savings, money markets, CDs, IRAs, and brokerage accounts. And just like the kinds of bank accounts we make deposits and withdrawals out of, we also have accounts among the relationships we have. Ooh, this is fun. Let's take a look at those. The obvious is with friends and family relationships. Think of each of those relationships as an emotional bank account. When a child brings us a bouquet of dandelions, for example, in a red Solo cup, or helps his siblings with the dishes when he doesn't need to, they're making deposits in our account. When they drain us with fighting, making demands, or a spouse is being especially demanding or difficult, those are obviously withdrawals, and they can be taxing, am I right? On those days we feel there have been more emotional withdrawals than deposits, we end up feeling depleted or empty. And that's why it's so important to build others in our close intimate circle by making sufficient deposits, so that when you need to make a withdrawal, there is plenty in the account. In Stephen R. Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, pages 188-199, through he teaches us that emotional bank accounts are accounts of trust instead of money. They are accounts based on how safe you feel with another person. He teaches that there are basically six ways to make deposits, or at least lessen our withdrawals, and I feel like they're worth sharing with you today. The first is to understand the individual. This means trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Listen and empathize with where they may be in their lives or maybe with their challenges. It's just so critically important to be kind and careful when dealing with others. Number two, Keep commitments. Valuing a person's time by not being late, following through with a commitment, or just sticking to something you've said you'll do is how people learn to trust us. We build emotional reserves by keeping commitments. Number 3. Clarifying expectations. None of us are mind readers, even if our spouses still think we should be, right? But don't we still sometimes expect those we're closest to to just know what's on our minds? Covey says, quote, communicating our expectations can help create a higher level of trust. When we ask for what we want and we get it, we can then trust a little more, end quote. The fourth is attending to the little things. Doing the small things consistently shows respect and is a direct reflection of how we care for others. Don't you find that the little things tend to become the big things when they do not receive our attention? So grant a smile, give a hug, send that text or those flowers, show compassion, and then do it again. Number five is showing personal integrity. Again, I want to quote the author who said, Quote, integrity is the moral floor upon which trusting relationships are built. When we operate with sound moral character, it makes it so easy for others to trust us, end quote. I love that. Number six, apologizing when we make a withdrawal. As human beings, we all withdraw, and fairly sometimes, don't we? We make mistakes and will more than likely continue to. (laughs) There is just such power in apologizing. That's one way we can make a deposit and try to correct an unkind or unnecessary withdrawal. Okay, so I want to ask you, have you ever had a check bounce? That's the classic example of making a withdrawal where there wasn't sufficient money to cover what you are trying to take out. So what happens when you do have a check that bounces? You get a charge, don't you? Or an overdraft fee or interest on the amount. So what happens when we make more withdrawals on our relationship accounts than the deposits needed to cover that withdrawal? What happens when the relationship is in a deficit? You have to pay for it too. And unfortunately, that can look like hurt feelings or emotional distance or strain, among other things, and that's no fun. We've all been there. This concept of deposits and withdrawals in our relationships makes sense, doesn't it? But what about the relationship you have with yourself? You may have to think about that one. How many times have you told yourself, for example, I'm going to do my ministering today, or I'll lose 10 pounds in a couple of months, Or, today I'm going to be kinder to my dog. (laughs) Whatever it is, when we breach our commitments even to ourselves, or let ourselves off the hook because, well, it's us, we are training our subconscious to not believe the self-talk or the person that's doing it. And let's face it, we spend more time in our heads than anywhere else, so it better be a good place we need to be able to trust ourselves we need to make regular deposits of habit consistency and again trust that comes from following through and being honest with ourselves what about deposits and withdrawals with our health if we're making daily weekly and monthly deposits of exercise and good eating and other health habits Think of how much easier it will be to withdraw an extra amount of energy, immune defense, or strength when we really need it in times of sickness or higher-than-usual stress or change. I like to think of that as our health savings account. Get it? Wink, wink. See what I did there? (laughs) Oh, that was cheesy. Okay. One of the most important ways of translating this idea is in regards to our relationship with God. It's awfully hard to ask for gracious and bounteous blessings of every kind, withdrawals, so to speak, if we haven't deposited anything. Or to put it another way, will the divine banker responsible for every one of our assets hand over a million-dollar withdrawal if we've only made a dollar deposit? There's something to think about. Well, now that I do think about it, I think our Savior Jesus Christ already has, He took mortal man, after all, with all of our flaws and offers exaltation and kingdoms and thrones and principalities. He can take our measly deposits and turn them into eternal riches, but He requires a willing heart and mind. He asks us to try. He asks us to deposit faith and obedience and service and covenants and love, repentance, and endurance, and then he adds his grace and mercy and helps our little balances grow, and grow, and grow. Oof, I love thinking about it that way. In the New Testament, Luke chapter 6, 38 to be exact, we hear the same principle from the Savior himself when he said, quote, "'Give, and it shall be given unto you.'" Good measure pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet withal, it shall be measured to you again. End quote. It would probably be helpful for us to remember that scripture when we're paying our tithing, for example, or giving fast offerings, or helping to feed the hungry or clothe the naked. Am I right? None of us have the bandwidth to just give and give and give. We pay the price when we allow others to make unnecessary or repeated withdrawals from our emotional bank accounts. We eventually run out of resources, and you can't give water from a dry well. So navigating this life of deposits and withdrawals is a real balancing act, not unlike the budgeting of funds that is required to live life and its bills and responsibilities. Emotional deposits are an important part of every single relationship, including those with ourselves and our God. I hope we're very generous in the amounts we contribute, for they will pay us back with dividends of happiness, love, peace, and contentment. So, as I wrap it up for another week and leave you a few things to think about this week, I invite you to imagine your life as an ATM. You only get out of it what you put into it. There's something to chew on. Until next time.